everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, the March to WrestleMania continues as we take on the ultimate challenge. It's WrestleMania VI, one of the most revered and iconic WrestleManias of all time. Kush, why is it that this show has endured so much through the ages? Well, at least part of it seems to be that just about every Canadian wrestler and personality who ever lived was in attendance on this particular night, and it seems to have lived in their memories forever. I've always loved that this kind of became part of Edge's backstory, is that he was here. Yep, in a really good seat, I think. I think he was like 10 or 15 rows up. Yeah, but I think also this is the the event that encapsulates the run of the Ultimate Warrior, who... While he was, at the same time, an unbelievably self-destructive figure and one who did not burn for a very long time, burned incredibly brightly for a little while. And as as WWE's sort of mainstream notoriety faded, I think the Ultimate Warrior was like the last thing that contributed to the cultural zeitgeist before it wasn't really a thing anymore, you know? Yeah, and he was specifically huge with a fan of a certain age. I think if you were between like... 8 and 15 at this point the ultimate warrior was your guy even more so than hogan right and it, it was when it says seems like a changing of the guard it felt like it was time for a changing of the guard we're here at the end of the 80s hulk hogan's been on top now for what is it six years yeah since 84 and he's been completely on top the entire time. He's looking older. The old guard are kind of almost all entirely gone. It feels like it's time for a new top guy. And so by crowning Ultimate Warrior here, it's a big moment. And it feels like a, a cultural moment almost. So maybe that's why it's so fondly remembered. And somebody beat Hulk Hogan clean. Yeah. First time Hogan had dropped a clean pin in... God knows how many years. You might have to go back to when Andre beat him at Shea Stadium. Is this the only time Hogan ever dropped a clean pin until his last run in WWE? Yeah, I think so. I mean, no, nothing's I jumping out at me. I can't remember Hollywood Hogan ever dropping a clean pin. Oh, I mean, Hogan. Oh, Hollywood Hogan was a little different. I don't know if he got pinned. I mean, he tapped out a few times. He tapped out uh, to Luger. He tapped out to. Um, to sting piper put him out with the sleeper yeah no pins though interestingly goldberg pinned him okay yeah there was that i forgot yeah, about that it's a very very short list until he came back in 2002 and he was jobbing to everybody jobbing to the un-americans and shit <laughs> nice guy hogan yeah but yeah this is a big deal wrestlemania and it feels like one and i actually one of my favorite things about it is this is the first wrestlemania that you can see the template for all future WrestleManias. I know I've said that before, but this more so because like the lighting is better. The production is better. The cinematography is better. Uh, everything, they're coming out the same way. It's even structured in the same way that they shoot and do stadium shows to this day. Like it looks very similar. Yeah, th just the visual of this show, I think puts it above four and five. It actually makes me wonder what I would think of WrestleManias four and five if they had happened in a nice big stadium instead of that shitty Atlantic city convention hall. It would have helped a lot. I think we all agree on that. Yeah. So like you said, this is the crowning moment for the ultimate warrior. You'd think this would be a long-term plan, but they had really only decided to put the belt on warrior back in the fall. And it's just another case of Hogan's going away to make a movie. I think there's also an element of kind of, you know, time for a change let's try to make a new top guy because we don't know if hogan's going to be around 
for that much longer. And I don't think they had any choice but Warrior here, right? I don't think anyone else would even have been in contention for the belt. No, I mean, frankly, Savage had been buried. I mean, last year, remember, the last podcast that you heard from us, we were talking about how Randy Savage was part of the biggest storyline in wrestling history. Here we are. He's not even fucking close to the title. Yeah. You know who could have been fighting for the title, though? Who? Zeus. Zeus. That was definitely the original plan, was Hogan versus Zeus here. And if only he had actually managed to learn how to cut a promo. He could not. They could not have him in a real match. He just was not capable of it. And when it's not like there was a real high standard for wrestling matches at this time. So that tells you just how bad he was. Yeah. I mean, we did the SummerSlam show with Zeus on it and they, they cover him as best as they can. And he still radiates with suckitude. Yeah. I mean, Nathan Jones, bad. Yes. Um, so they decide let's make warrior. They go with a face versus face title match. You know, Really, the f- the first time I can remember a big face versus face world title match in the WWF since they did San Martino against Pedro Morales at Shea Stadium. Um, something that was extremely rare in this era, and possibly for good reason if you look at the buy rate for this show, which we'll get to a little later. Um, I think it was still the right call to have Hogan put over Warrior, because if you're going to make your top guy... Just go all in on it, I'd say. I think that's absolutely true. Um, The established template for this would have had Hogan turning heel to put over Warrior. Hogan claims he wanted to do that. In one of his insane lies, he says he he wanted to turn heel on Warrior here and keep the belt and that he would be so hot. Hogan's also claimed that after he beat Andre the Giant, he wanted to turn heel and have them bring in Sting to feud with him as a babyface. Let's make one thing abundantly clear. (laughs) Hulk Hogan did not want to turn heel to put over anyone in the 80s. I don't give a damn what he says. The merch money he was pulling in at that point had to be astronomical. Hulk Hogan never wanted to turn heel and never wanted to put over anyone in any era. Yeah, so let's just be clear about that. Like, John Cena has done a lot of interviews that kind of explain this. It's just like, look, even if you want to creatively, the money is so astonishingly good as a babyface that if you can keep it up, why would you ever change? Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just Hogan being Hogan. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that would have fit the template would be Hogan loses the belt to Savage or DiBiase or somebody and they put over Warrior so that you have Warrior beating a heel. But I think it's better that they didn't do that. Yeah, despite the fact that this wasn't necessarily a huge commercial success, I do think that it was the biggest possible deal and the best way to put over Warrior. It's something that we remember to this day because it was Hogan putting over Warrior clean. That's just the simple fact of the matter. Now, whether or not... I, I can't think of really anything else that they could have done. So let's just launch into the big question. Obviously, Warrior didn't work out. Not just because he self-destructed, not even six months later, but also he wasn't really a tremendous box office draw up until that point anyway. Where do you think they went wrong with Warrior? 
Well, we we talked about this on the SummerSlam 90 episode. I see two big issues jump out at me. Maybe three. First, I think there's just an issue of the warrior as a character and performer not being able to express vulnerability. And I see it as very similar to Goldberg. And they had very similar runs in that they both were incredibly hot. And then seemingly as soon as they got the belt, they cooled off because it was just like, what do you, they're too invincible. What can you do with them? Neither is going to sell, neither is going to express any vulnerability or garner any sympathy. Right. Um, Secondly, I think they made a mistake with who they paired Warrior with after WrestleMania. I mean, as we talked about on the SummerSlam 90 episode, I think Earthquake was the right guy to work with Warrior, a big, gigantic, massive monster heel. Hogan smartly saw the money in Earthquake and I think kind of claimed him as the guy he wanted to work with. But they should have had Warrior or Earthquake be Warrior's challenger for SummerSlam. Instead, they put him with Perfect and Rude and DiBiase, who are all tremendously talented wrestlers, but all kind of smaller guys who had all been beaten already. You know, Warrior had beaten Rude. He had beaten Perfect. Hogan had beaten Perfect. I don't think any of the three of them were kind of the right threats to the title at this point. I think- Actually, I think you touched on exactly who it should have been. And we'll kind of cover this a little bit later on this show. But an undefeated Mr. Perfect is probably the best first opponent for the Ultimate Warrior. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, he has to put over Brutus Beefcake on this show. Yup. <laughs> Just Vince Logic. We're going to have perfect challenge for the title. Now get beefcake over. <laughs> um, and the third, and we'll cover this more when we get to the match, but uh, do you think, look, Hogan puts on a tremendous performance after the match. His anguish and his sportsmanship and kind of the honor and dignity he loses with. That, I think, helped make Hogan even bigger do you think that hurt Warrior, though? Okay, so you're kind of treading into the theory that many people have that Hogan intentionally did that to show up the Warrior. Hogan himself all but said that was his intention, but it's Hogan, you know. What, what Do we really want to put any stock in that? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it necessarily showed up the Warrior. I think it was probably the right decision to make. I think... The, the template was clear. They had Hogan lose to Warrior, but they remained friends, so you could make money by having them team together against people and draw that way. Like the new Mega Powers, right? Yeah. Like, what is it, like the Ultimate Maniacs or something? Didn't they do that match like that? Uh, was it? I think, I think uh, it was Warrior and Savage were the Ultimate Maniacs. Oh, that's right, that's right. But anyway, like that. that's recreating the mega powers with Hogan and warrior must have certainly seemed like a money thing to do. And maybe one can turn on the other. Exactly. And so, and then when you do the rematch, there's actual heat there. And so you actually have somewhere to go with it. I totally get that idea. I do think not just having it be warriors moment did take something away of him just being on his own. But in this 
time period, nobody was really more over than Hogan on their own anyway. Like even having Hogan put you over isn't as much of a rub as just being a friend of Hogan's, you know? And the, but the paradox is coming into the show, Warrior was out popping Hogan. And in fact, if this show had been anywhere but Toronto, I think the crowd would have cheered Warrior over Hogan. But Hogan, for whatever reason, was so over in Toronto and so over in Canada that they cheered him over Warrior here. It wasn't like they booed Warrior. They cheered both of them. But Hogan was more over in the building this night. I don't think that was going to be true anywhere else in the world. You're right. It's just weird how sometimes some people have towns or cities or areas that are just completely theirs, even if they don't really have like a great connection to them. Like obviously CM Punk is like the most over man in Chicago, whatever he embodies that city. But like Hulk Hogan to this day out would out pop anyone on earth in Toronto. And And I I really can't explain it. No idea why it nothing jumps out at me. It, it it doesn't really make any sense, but it, it's pretty great. And maybe partially it's, was it always like that before this show? Uh, him and him, Hogan and Orndorff did that massive crowd in Toronto for the big event. And maybe that was part of it that they did. I, and I don't know, wh- but which one caused the other? Was he over in Toronto because they did that huge show in Toronto? Or did they draw so much just because he was so over in Toronto? It's a great question. It certainly seems like they didn't exploit that enough during this era because holy shit, is he it's over? Seems like they should have been running Toronto all the time. Well, that's what they would go to eventually in the 90s when they didn't have a ton of money opportunities in the States. was like, look, Canada's never not been white hot. Why haven't we been running it more? Yeah. Yeah. So they opened the Sky Dome the year before this. Toronto is one of their hottest markets, so it's really a no-brainer that they're going to do this show here. Um, back to stadiums after a couple of years in Atlantic City. They sell it out. It's a massive house in Toronto here. Um, so the setup between Hogan and Warrior, they just did, they did a small number of angles, not a lot of physicality, and no real heat. Um, they famously clash in the Rumble. They do that. There's that moment where the ring is cleared except for the two of them and they bump into each other and they turn and face each other and just the stare down is electric. I mean, the entire crowd is on their feet to see these guys go at it. And we still do this to this day. Yes. Like we still there do. There was the- no WrestleMania sign to point to here, but this was where that came from. Yes. Like this is the original version of that. And the word electric is absolutely the word to describe it because you just didn't, not only did you not see these two ever interact, not only did you ever not see, they these two had been expertly kind of kept away from each other the entire time Ultimate Warrior was on the rise. And you never really saw faces fight faces like this. So it was one of those sort of dream matches that you never see. And the fact, like when they imply here that you're actually going to get it, it's just great to see the entire crowd be like, wait, what? Yeah, a uh, huge moment, and they do so little. They crisscross, and then they hit a double clothesline, and they're both down, and then the next guy comes in, and you know, the, the match just continues. Warrior ends up getting eliminated by somebody else, and Hogan ends up winning. Um, but just a brilliant, perfect tease. And then a couple weeks later on Saturday night's main event, 
Hogan and Warrior team up against Mr. Perfect and the Genius. Hogan takes the heat in the match. He makes the hot tag to Warrior. Warrior, the stronger man, cleans up. And then Hogan blind tags into the match, hits the leg drop, just kind of vultures the victory away from Warrior. You know, Genius and Perfect attack after the match, and Warrior accidentally clotheslines Hogan. I mean... Did you feel like in the build for this match, I know that they're going for face versus face and equals, but I just, I got heel from Hogan during like the whole video backstory. It's, it was it's just, subtle, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's natural. When you have two faces, one has to be a little more heelish. And I think naturally the veteran and the champion, like Bret Hart against Shawn Michaels is going to kind of assume that heel role. Yeah. And you kind of see that in the match too, because obviously Hulk has to lead him along. So he's obviously got to do put more of the heat on Warrior and take the comeback and stuff like that until you get to the end. And we'll talk about that with like multiple comebacks. Yeah. And then initially for the main event, they'd announced something weird. Like I think they were going to do Hogan and Tugboat against Earthquake and Dino Bravo or something. But then... They changed that to a much better Hogan versus Macho King Randy Savage WrestleMania rematch. And this is the match that was supposed to be officiated by Mike Tyson. But fate intervenes when a couple weeks prior, Mike Tyson gets knocked out by Buster Douglas and loses the heavyweight title in Tokyo. Which in and of itself is one of the great what-ifs in sports history. Just what would have happened had that not happened. But especially here, like what would have happened if they had gotten Mike Tyson at this point? He probably would have been in a match at some point later on. So as revealed by Bruce Pritchard on something to wrestle with, they had a WWF film crew following Tyson around in Tokyo. Vince was there and he shot a little thing with Tyson where he's like, well, goddamn, Mike, when are you going to get in the ring? Wrestle Hulk Hogan. And Tyson is like, oh, I can't wrestle like Hulk Hogan. He's crazy. He's so big. Which is not really how you're supposed to set that up. But <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's so weird that Tyson didn't do wrestling until 1998 because he's like legitimately a huge wrestling fan. Like, a that's, huge yeah, fan. Like he's like the, the Ronda Rousey is the female Mike Tyson in that sense. I mean, like literally... Mike Tyson's dream would be to team with Bruno San Martino to fight somebody like yes, that's which agonizes Vince McMahon to no end. Right. <laughs> oh, the check he would have had to stroke San Martino to get that match in the ring. Oh God. Um, yeah. So after he's knocked out, Tyson pulls out of doing this main event spot and instead they get Buster Douglas and it's, you know, still kind of a, I mean, Hogan and Savage have a good match. The Douglas involvement is fun. He gets to punch out Savage afterwards. Hogan, of course, retains his title, you know, beats Savage in the middle of the ring. Um, it's still a fun deal, but it, it would have been really cool to see Mike Tyson here. Oh, absolutely. That, that would have been something special. And this is still when he is sort of babyface Mike Tyson. This is before. Yeah, I think he would have been a good. I mean, I think he would have been a good guy. I mean, this is before the rape charges. This is before the Evander Holyfield ear biting thing. He's still, yeah, more or less a good guy at this point. Yeah, he's not the baddest man on the planet yet. He's just the best up and coming boxer in the world. Yeah. Um, 
Also on the main event, uh, Warrior defeats Dino Bravo to retain the Intercontinental title. Bravo then Bravo and Earthquake attack Warrior. Hogan makes the save. Warrior takes offense. They have another confrontation. And then Hogan wrestles Earthquake on Superstars. It goes to a disqualification. Earthquake is about to squash Hogan, and Warrior makes the save. This time it's Hogan who takes offense, and Hogan throws down the ultimate challenge. Champion versus champion, title for title, winner take all. Though that is a matter of some debate, because as as we also learned on Something to Wrestle With, this match is billed 100%. It's title for title. Title for title. In Gorilla Monsoon's words, title for title. And Howard Finkel's and everyone else's, but yeah. And Vince McMahon somehow thinks that we're to get from that. No, no, if he wins one title, he'll vacate the other. Well, I mean, Warrior does give up the Intercontinental title after this, which is... I don't know. How do you feel about double champions? It's never something I'm a fan of because I just don't. There's no good way for it to work for a guy to lose one belt, but not the other. Right. It's not like they ever are going to lose the world title and keep the Intercontinental. That is never a thing that will ever happen. But you have to separate them at some point. Right. And like, I completely understand the idea that, hey, you're only allowed to hold one title. So you have to choose. You can vacate one, whatever. Like, I, I don't mind that if that's like the instituted rule, but that's not something that they laid in place here at all. You mean you don't think there's an actual WWF rule book with that in there? I would love it if they actually published a real one. I can guarantee you, if I ran a wrestling company, we would publish a rule book if only to try to get people to buy it. Yeah, and then literally you could have heels. How many copies of that do you think they would have sold in this era if there were a rule book? So many. Can you imagine people at home thumbing through it being like, he violated this rule (laughs) right here. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, back in the old school NWA actually had a rule book. It was just like a card with 10 rules on it or something, but you can find this online and it's super cool. Right. That's such a cool collector's item to have. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, as we said, it's a legendary show. It does a disappointing buy rate, only 550,000 buys. That's not a horrible number, but they had done almost 800,000 the year before. So it is a disappointment. I think the other part of the explanation on top of, you know, face versus face, and maybe their business was starting to soften is that they had raised the price of the show up to $30. So, I mean, on, with $30, they did, they did less, less money, with, but they still they didn't lose that much money on the show because of the increased price, which is something that will recur throughout the history of this company, that they will begin to realize that they can just raise their prices, and even if fewer people watch, they'll make more money. Exactly. Though it is interesting, throughout the course of wrestling history, you always think a face versus face match is going to draw better than it does. And maybe the reason why it doesn't is it's just really hard to tell a compelling story about a face versus face match because really all of the appeal is like the dream match scenario. And that's the only appeal. Like the feud isn't interesting here at all. It's just the idea of Hulk Hogan versus the Ultimate Warrior. And you'll get people with that, but it's it's been proven again and again and again that people 
personal issues draw money. Exactly. Personal issues draw money. Wrestling, and I think it's pretty much correct. Yeah. I mean, that's just so much the case. Like, an incredibly well drawing match was The Rock versus John Cena. Do you think without the personal issue they built up that would have drawn as much? I don't. No, and I mean, that's part of why the first one drew better was they had a personal issue that time, whereas the second one, it was, you know, an I, I respect you type of deal. Right, exactly. It's just, um, you need that issue. And yeah, you I can't... Mean, off the top of my head, the only, the only face versus face match that really jumps out at me that drew really well is Austin and Rock at WrestleMania 17. And the, even, I mean, they were both faces, but like that, they, they built that as a personal issue. Like there was... Right venom between the two of them and you could really feel it and that's what was really effective about that yeah so yeah i mean i think yeah i mean it, it's a fair rule to say you know good guy against bad guy certainly in american wrestling is what draws money it's just the foundation of how our storytelling works absolutely um so i mean as far as what ifs you know we mentioned hogan versus zeus Thank God that didn't happen. That would have been awful as much as I love Zeus. But if we just want to throw out some other things that could have happened here, could why couldn't we have gotten Roddy Piper versus Randy Savage here? Well, I mean... But Piper had something else he had to do. Yeah, we're definitely going to fucking get to that. <laughs> but And that's one of those matches that it's weird never really happened ever. Like they yeah, were, they, they wrestled in WCW, and they were. I mean, by then they were so old that it just did, it didn't mean much, and the match was not good. Right, but during but, this era, they're both such important people, and they're a face and a heel during a time where there were only so many to go around, and yet they never even really crossed paths. Yeah, I mean, Piper's just not around much after eighty five, eighty six. And by, by the time he turned face, Savage turned face too, and they didn't do face versus face matches. That's a good point. Let's let's talk about this briefly. I, they may have had a house show run. I don't know when it would have been though. I, I've 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 seen I've seen some house show matches between them from this era, but I don't really remember when they were taking place, and I don't, it never happened on TV or on a pay per view. Right. Let's talk about this. The Ultimate Warrior kind of forced their hand by getting as over as he got. Like, obviously, they were pushing him strongly, but I don't think they necessarily ever had it planned out far ahead of time. Like, the Warrior will become our top guy in 1989, you know? But what the hell would this have been otherwise? If, like, if you remove the Warrior, and obviously Zeus isn't going to work, I'm not sure what Hogan does here. <sighs> Hogan Savage 2. I mean, I guess, but like the Blues. I mean, it feels like they burned through that, even though they didn't have their, they didn't have a singles rematch until shortly before this show. But yeah, it already felt done by SummerSlam, much less here. Earthquake. I mean, I guess it would have been Earthquake, but I think we just had, would have just had to really go fast with that. I think we'd remember it very similar to the way that we remember the King Kong Bundy Bundy. match where it's just like in a different era. I'll tell you like today, what it would be would be Hogan against dusty. And I think we, we we need to talk kind of big picture about dusty here because he's over like a motherfucker, but they're not going to do anything with them. Do you think 
they're intentionally not going to do anything with him or that Vince just doesn't see it with him? Well, yeah, Vince doesn't see anything in him because he's a big, fat Southern redneck. But Vince does see the charisma. He gets that. And, like, part of one of Vince's, you know, Vince has a soft spot for guys who were over for his dad. And I think that's part of why he was willing to bring Dusty in is that Dusty had worked the garden against Superstar Graham in the late 70s. And they'd drawn monster houses. Because it is uncharacteristic for Vince to bring him in at all. Because there's just this, there's a very, there was a very personal animus against Dusty Rhodes from the WBF guys. And you see it kind of throughout the era. I mean, there's a reason DiBiase's servant is named Virgil. There's a reason Akeem the African Dream is obviously a rib on Dusty Rhodes. There's just, they really hate Dusty because he's, you know, he was the one guy who was able to hang with them for a while. I mean, Crockett were the bad guys, and they did have a couple of years where they were not, you know, necessarily even with the WBF, but they were pretty close. Dusty Rhodes is Eric Bischoff, and the fact that he's much more likable than Eric Bischoff yeah. shouldn't distract you from the fact that in this era, that's how he was seen. And so every story that you've ever heard about Eric coming in and people being like, what the fuck is that asshole doing here? That's this. And so, like, Dusty did get pushed. Like, the revisionist history you hear about how they buried Dusty Rhodes isn't true. He gets a ton of screen time. He cuts a ton of promos. He gets a high-profile feud with Savage. I mean, it's just, that's, he's the other guy who could get the belt here. And I don't, you don't even think of him because it seems so unthinkable for Dusty Rhodes to be the WWF champion. And sure, he's kind of old and, you know, fatter than ever, but... He's still Dusty Rhodes, and he's still super over. Yeah, this is a this is a territory that, funnily enough, was tailor built for Dusty Rhodes. It's a babyface charisma first territory mm-hmm. where work rate isn't that important, and he's monster over. He easily could have had a short run with the belt, easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they never in a million years would have let Dusty Rhodes beat Hulk Hogan, though. No. No, they wouldn't like, even let Flair beat Hulk Hogan. They, they wouldn't. They, they had to put Cena over Brock Lesnar when Lesnar came back just to establish that their top guy was better than UFC's top guy. Right. Is how petty Vince can be about these things. And no matter what anybody says, he is exactly that petty. <laughs> they killed the invasion just to make sure everybody understood that the WSW guys weren't as good as the WWF guys. All they had to do to make the invasion work was not bury WCW. And Vince was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, and then hit the bury button. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fun to talk. I mean, you could have gotten the belt to Dusty through a transitional champion. You could have had Savage get the belt <coughs> from Hogan in some kind of screw job. And then Dusty beats Savage for the belt. Honestly, probably the easiest way is for Earthquake to beat Hogan for the belt, injure him, and then Dusty wins the belt in his absence. Basically what they did with Savage the year before. Or the two years before. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it it is interesting because Dusty is the other option, and I would bet he would have done better as champion than Warrior. I I don't don't think he would have flopped the way Warrior did. 
He could have worked with probably anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting road not take. And so after a very long preamble, I think it's time to get into the event. It's April 1st, 1990, a Sunday, a matinee start of four o'clock PM. We're at the Sky Dome in Toronto, Canada, a sellout crowd of 67,678. It's the announced number. Couldn't find whether there's believed to be a discrepancy. It certainly appears to be sold out. Um, it's a gigantic three and a half million dollar gate, um, shattering the old record. Um, does a 4.5 buy rate for, as we said, only 550,000 buys. A bit of a disappointment. I think that's definitely, I'm sure they were not fired up when that number came in. Oh, absolutely. Especially like this is their, their future versus their present. You have to imagine they expected more money than this. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, Hogan wore the match certainly was over in the building, but yeah, people, people bought tickets to see it, but they didn't buy, buy pay-per-views and the numbers they were expecting. Yeah. Um, there's also a very limited closed circuit. Um, I can't remember if they may, there may have been a little bit of closed circuit next year too, but they've pretty much wound that down at this point. I don't really even know why they're still bothering with it. It must've only been in regions where there was no pay-per-view available. Yeah. And there probably were some venues who were still requesting it after all the success that the previous ones had had, because it takes a few years for those things to actually fall off. But yeah, it was done with. Yeah. Announcers. We've got gorilla monsoon and Jesse Ventura. For the final time, this is Jesse Ventura's final WrestleMania on commentary and his last WrestleMania appearance until WrestleMania 20. Um, and he's clean shaven, Jesse Ventura. Yeah, here. that's weird. Um, so he would have his final falling out with McMahon um, when he found out that other guys were getting royalties on the Coliseum videos and he wasn't. <laughs> This led to a lawsuit and a victory for Ventura. He won nearly a million dollars. It's actually kind of a landmark court ruling regarding, you know, just royal, just royalty law and whether under what circumstances a performer is entitled to royalties. But a big legal win for Jesse, and you know, props to him for that. Jesse is one of the only people who has ever gone toe to toe with Vince McMahon and won. Yeah. And he did it repeatedly. And publicly. Like usually it's just like, ah, eh, it's settled out of court and we don't know the terms. But Jesse is the proof that you can do anything to Vince and he'll take you back. He he just wants you back more. Yeah. <laughs> is there any other explanation for why they're talking to Del Rio? Yeah, it, it it genuinely doesn't matter to Vince what you've done to him. He does not care. I, I think it gratifies him as weird as this is for people who have shit on him to come back to him and take his money. He thinks that makes him superior to them. And it does. I think that makes him a money mark. Yeah, probably. I, I think I would take, I, I think I would take pleasure in not giving them my money. I say personally, I would take pleasure in receiving as much money as Vince McMahon would want to give me and then still hating him afterwards. Um, so, the opening package. Amazing. Icon. Do you want to take this one? I got it. Okay. <clears throat> Upon examination of the galaxies of space, <laughs> images begin to appear. Images of strange and powerful forces. 
but of all the forces in the universe, the two most powerful, Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, prepare to explode. Champion versus champion, title for title. It's the ultimate challenge. It's WrestleMania. The the WrestleMania. I don't think we've commented on it, but that classic WrestleMania theme is so great. So great. Nothing fires me up like hearing that song, and it makes everything feel so big. Yeah, just this whole thing, and like the video package that they're showing you is literally like constellations drawn in the shape of Hulk Hogan (laughs) and the Ultimate Warrior. It's amazing. It's the best production they've ever done to this point. And it's low tech, but yeah, it just clicks. It just works. It's so weird and kitschy and corny, and I love it. Yeah. Uh, great intro from Jesse. I've been to the Super Bowl. I've been to the World Series. I've even been to the Rolling Stones. But there's nothing like WrestleMania. And I mean, what a company guy Jesse is, because he's so we've mentioned in the past couple of podcasts that Jesse's so above this. He doesn't have to put it over, yeah. but like he does. He, he's genuinely into it. Um, and then we get Robert Goulet performing Oh Canada. I had assumed he was Canadian, but he's not. He's American. And. Uh. Famously, he fucked up the Star Spangled Banner at the second Ali Liston fight and forgot the words and sung them all wrong. Which is funny because he absolutely nails O Canada. Oh, great rendition. I mean, I'll also comment on O Canada is an amazing national anthem. I was going to say, it, can what we just say. Beautiful state, song. O Canada is immeasurably better of a national anthem than ours is. It just, It just frankly is. I'm jealous every time I hear it. I'm not Canadian, but it still stirs something inside of me when I hear it. It's just proud and beautiful and lovely, and Goulet kills it, and everybody in the crowd is singing it. It's great. So, yeah, to reassure him that he would remember the words, they encourage the crowd to sing along and put the (laughs) words up on the screen you know they thought about ribbing him and not putting the words up. Oh, or just putting the wrong words up? Oh, you know <laughs> that, they thought about oh, that. Oh, that would have been so cruel. <laughs> and then, for some reason, Jesse says that Goulet reminds him of Axl Rose? Yeah, I don't know what, what? that... I don't what is know, he talking about? I do not know what that reference is to, not even slightly. Gorilla Monsoon did not know who Axl Rose was. Nope. Do you think Jesse just knows his time is coming up here and he's just giving even less fucks than usual? I mean, I think that that's true, but he's still like... He's still awesome tonight. If anything, this was his best performance. Yeah, he walks the line so clearly. I think he's great in the main event, too. He's a genius. Like, he's just so amazing at getting the narrative across. Even though he's on the other side of it, being on the other side of it pushes the narrative forward. Like he's just, he's got such a great mind for that. Uh, So, our opening match, we've got Coco Beware against Rick the Model Martel. Big pop for the Birdman as he's coming down. Uh, Because we're back in a dome, the carts are back. Now, I don't really remember, even though we just watched three a little while ago, did they take this interminably long to get to the ring at three? No, it felt like the carts were... I don't know if the carts were faster. I don't know if the Sky Dome 
I don't know why it would have a larger field. You know, they played football and baseball there, but yeah, for some reason the carts felt slower. Yeah, twice during this show, I fell asleep while the cart was going to the ring and woke back up before it had gotten there. Yeah. Uh, Martel has a ton of heat. The model gimmick is so brilliant. And it somehow brought out the charisma in him that he had never been able to find before. It it makes me think that somewhere deep down, Rick Martel is a douchebag. Because like to find an inner douchebag like that, it's got to be there. Maybe he was actually the problem and not Tom Zank. No, I mean, no, we know this is Tom Zank. Come on, it's Tom Zay. Um, uh, you know, Coco's doing his stuff, crossbody, drop kicks. Martel takes over. He hits a backbreaker. He goes for a Boston Crab, but Coco blocks it and makes the ropes. Um, shortly thereafter, Martel locks in the Boston Crab and gets the win. You know, three, four minute match. Quick opener. Interesting to have the heel go over in the opening match with all the matches on this show, but he's Canadian. Yeah, just, just a quick one to start the show. Didn't have a problem with it. This is such a mild gripe, but I never understood why the French guy did the Boston crab. Like these days, name of the hole. I think it, I've heard it called the Quebec crab when he does it sometimes. I, it's just that in these days that we're in now, there's no way they don't brand that as something, you know what I mean? I mean, did anybody have... Nobody really had a finisher with a name at this point, though. Yeah. Only Rude had the Rude Awakening. There are a few. Rude Awakening, Million Dollar Dream, Perfect Plex. I think it's kind of a heel thing, but he was a heel. So, I just always loved... Even like Hogan. Do they ever actually start calling it the Atomic Leg Drop, or is that just something uh, that we refer to no. as? I think that's just a fan thing. Yeah. Like, even that, like, literally maybe the most famous move of all time, maybe the Stone Cold Stunner's bow more over, is literally just the leg drop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next match for the World Tag Team Championship, the colossal connection of Andre the Giant and Haku defend against Demolition. Uh, colossal connection won the belts from Demolition back in December. They are managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan. Demolition... Um, is now Axe and Crush because nope, not yet. I have that wrong. Still Axe and Smash here. Crush hasn't been thrown in there yet. Yeah, it's still the two the two guys. They're looking rough by this point. Let me say this. I They do get a gigantic pop here. Yes. I have literally taken a dump on the demolition every single time I've had the opportunity to on this podcast. This time I am not going to do that. They are crazy, crazy, crazy over. They'll probably get a bigger pop than Warrior gets on this show, especially when they win this match. No doubt about it. And the interesting thing is they turn them heel after this. Which is very odd. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly what the deal was, but yeah, you know, this feels like the peak of their overness right here. Yeah, so, I mean, they're, and this match is not anywhere nearly as bad as the other Demolition matches that we've covered. Demolition does a great job of carrying Andre to something watchable. I mean, mostly they're working with Haku, but still. Yeah. Uh, Andre's not tagging in much at this point. I mean, this is Andre's final WrestleMania. I think his final televised WWF match. 
Yeah, this is sort of his solemn goodbye. He continues to wrestle for a really long time after this, but not... I think he only does some house shows in the WWF, but he keeps wrestling in Japan and Mexico and kind of wherever wherever they'll let him after this. Sadly, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, you know, Andre's swan song, um, Demolition, get the win after Andre accidentally kicks Haku. Andre gets stuck in the ropes. Demolition hit the demolition decapitation on Haku and win the belts back. Gigantic pop. Uh, Heenan berates Andre, slaps him, and Andre hits him back, although he even kind of botches the slap and doesn't really land it. Um, Haku runs them off, or Andre runs off Haku and Heenan. Huge ovation for Andre here and a very classy send-off. It absolutely was a classy send-off. It was... Despite the fact that Andre couldn't do anything, they protected him really well here so that he could still look impressive to the crowd. And the crowd wanted to cheer for him. I mean, it had been a couple of years with Andre as a heel now. And it, it was clear that they, they were ready to love Andre again. Yeah. And, um, you know, he really wanted to keep wrestling. Vince, I think, finally just decided enough's enough. And he's dead a couple i mean he'll be at wrestlemania 7 in a non-wrestling role but he is dead a few years after this yep yeah just a body the human body is not meant to be that size unfortunately uh next up we've got another man the size the human body is not meant to be and another guy who left us too soon it's earthquake making making his wrestlemania debut against hercules God, how is Hercules still employed? I noticed something since we've been doing these WrestleMania podcasts that I'd never really known before about Hercules, which is specifically that he has some of the most amazing theme music. <laughs> I love, yeah, the big trumpet. It's like the, this Clash of the Titans, gigantic sounding theme music that you're like, who is this awesome guy? Yeah, and then, Hercules. unfortunately, oh, it's fuck. Hercules. Yeah, uh, he gets his ass squashed here. Butt splash from Earthquake for the win. Um, you know, good squash. Earthquake should go over strong here. They're shining him up to run with Hogan. Yep. Uh, they give Hercules the dignity of being able to walk out under his own power for some reason. I probably would have had him do the stretcher job here. Yeah, pretty much anybody who takes the butt splash at this point before he gets to Hogan should be stretchered out. But it is yeah. what it is. Hogan gets the stretcher the first time. Right. Who the fuck is Hercules? Come on now. Uh, we get our first appearance from Miss Elizabeth in a long time as she's interviewed by Rena Barrett backstage. Hmm. Something might be going on here. Yeah. Now, Rena Barrett is sort of like the TMZ of her day. She yes. was like a gossip columnist and she like hosted like some small, it's like a Joan Rivers type of thing. She just a less... very funny segment with Jesse Ventura later. Yes. But in this one, it was super weird. This segment, it feels like a Barbara Walters special. There's like no, nothing to it at all. It's just like, why won't you come back Elizabeth? Well, sometimes I'm afraid that if I get involved, I might get involved too much. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, yeah, it's a, I mean, this has been a recurring theme throughout our podcasts. Um, the inability of WWE to 
use female characters if they are not wrestlers. Um, before there was Sonny with nothing to do, there was Elizabeth with nothing to do. Obviously, the Elizabeth situation is complicated by her and Savage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think Savage was going to be cool with her managing somebody else. It's, And it's not like you can really turn her heel. Like Even with their best efforts, she just doesn't have the acting chops to pull that off. I don't think that would have worked. So she's just kind of around and on the sidelines until they eventually reconcile like three years after this. Um, next match, we've got Mr. Perfect against Brutus Beefcake. Perfect is billed as undefeated, but he was actually pinned by the Ultimate Warrior at Madison's, Madison Square Garden a few weeks prior to this. Um, this is a little bit of a longer match, eight minutes or so. Uh, Perfect gets the win after um, kicking out of being hit with the Genius's Scroll hitting Perfect with a catapult where Perfect hit his head on the post, and that would lead to Beefcake getting the pin. Um, Brutus Beefcake, really protected and not very good at wrestling. <sighs> Friend of Hogan, though. Mr. Perfect's undefeated streak was a yeah. big deal. Despite the fact that, yes, he had been pinned by the Ultimate Warrior at Madison Square Garden, as far as most people watching at home knew, Mr. Perfect was undefeated. It was a big deal. This was a great way. It was really the only way to take a smaller heel like this and make them seem like they're an actual threat to a guy like Hogan and Warrior and guys like that. That he was so technically perfect that he would find a way to beat you. It was yeah. sort of the same way that like Ric Flair would always win by being a cheating prick. Yeah, I think he even beaten Hogan by count out a few times. Yeah. Like the idea was is that Perfect was so smart and so good, he would beat you anyway, it didn't matter. To have him like they never even got a chance to see if there was money in him. They blow their wad here hard. And like he'll never really recover from this. Yeah. Like he'll he'll get some sniffs of the main event after this, but like it's like they just gave up on it. I think he had a run against Hogan on the house shows and it didn't draw very well. And they just kind of pulled the plug. I just, this is something that could have used like another year of build for something, you know? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think like undefeated perfect against warrior is something that might've done well. I mean, certainly better than perfect who got beat by Brutus beefcake. At that point, at this point, is Ultimate Warrior undefeated? No, because Rude beat, beat him. Yeah. Right. So it would be like, hey, Warrior, you're 256 and 1, and I'm 256 and 0. Yeah, had to put Beefcake over, though. And it's not even good. No, like, it, it's really sucks. not a very good match. No, this is garbage. <laughs> I. You know, Beefcake was Hogan's buddy, and so he was untouchable. Uh, kind just, of all there is to that. I'm just sad. <laughs> well, you're about to get sadder, because next up it's Roddy Piper and Bad News Brown time. All right, you guys know exactly what we're about to be talking about, because this is one of those things about wrestling that everybody knows, is that once upon a time, Roddy Piper put on blackface on half of his body and wrestled a match. He swore he'd never do it. 
he swore to Mr. T he would never paint his body black, and here he is. Here he is. He only painted half of it black, so it doesn't count. You're right. The fuck was this? He tried to explain this, and it is the most nonsensical thing I've ever heard. I don't know if you ever listened to Piper's podcast when he had one, or watched any of his shoot interviews, but his brain stopped working at some point in the last 10 years of his life. He just, I don't know what it was, because I don't think he ever had like a drug or alcohol problem as far as I know. Probably no more than anybody else did coke in the 80s. I just, for some reason, he just like could not speak coherently anymore. But I'm going to read this explanation of him after he was asked about this whole thing on a podcast. He says, first of all, you know, I was born in Saskatoon. There are no black people that I know of that are dumb enough to go to a place that cold. So there's no racism in me at all. Of course, someone who's never been around black people could not be racist. That's just obvious, right? Completely impossible. Absolutely. At the time, I was walking down the hall of some arena. Maybe the Hoosier Dome. It was not the Hoosier Dome. (laughs) They don't go there and go WrestleMania. I'm not sure. Vince McMahon says, Hot Rod, I need to speak with you. I walk into a room, and I could have cut the air with a knife. It was Bad News Brown, Pat Patterson, and Vince McMahon. I said, what's going on? He says, I want you to wrestle Bad News Brown at WrestleMania. I'm looking at Bad News. He was a really good judo player and just a so-so professional wrestler. And What's going through my mind? I'm looking at him, and I'm going, I have 45 interviews about this guy. And I'm thinking about Nelson Mandela at that time, what he had said something that really stuck with me. Yeah, Nelson Mandela is a huge, like, topic in the news at this point. This is right after, pretty much right after he'd been released from prison and became president, right? Yes. So, I mean, I guess... Nelson Mandela is apparently the only black person Roddy Piper knows. He saw a black man on the TV, and then he came up with this. Nelson Mandela was put in jail for 20-something years for political crimes. Every morning, he was the first man when the guard came to extend his hand to the guard. What a hell of a man. At the same time, Cindy Lauper had true colors out. In my mind, what I was trying to do, there is no difference. I needed material on Bad News Brown. I did something where I sang true colors, and I did a thing about Nelson Mandela. But they, they don't seem to remember that. Yes, I, we oh do. My God, can you believe they don't remember that? How is that supposed to help? <laughs> the also, thing... let, let's just accept for a moment that that was where he was attempting to go with this build. How does that help to build to a match with Bad News Brown to sing True Colors and talk about Nelson Mandela? Because I, I don't know. Is the fact that he only painted half his body a thing on bad news brown only being half black I, I the explanation he gives on the show is that he has two split personalities the hot rod and the hot scott and the hot scott acts black yeah yeah the hot scott does disco dancing i i, I continue continue the thing I didn't do so well was when I 
came down. I pretended to be Michael Jackson. I didn't quite dance like Michael does, I guess. I also thought this might be a reference to black or white, but it turns out that song didn't come out until a year after this. Yep. So maybe, maybe that song was inspired by this angle. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, and then he goes in to tell the story of how they ribbed him and the paint wouldn't come off, which we'll get to in a second. That is like the most just dessert of all time. Yes. Um, so Bad News Brown's perspective. He said Piper was a huge racist. Uh, he said he was told that he and Piper were going to work a long program after WrestleMania, but it didn't happen. And he said that was a good thing because he ended up would have ended up beating the shit out of Piper because he wouldn't have been able to take it. And if you doubt that Bad News could have done that, he was a bronze medalist in judo in the Olympics. He would have whooped that ass. Look, let's be clear. Andre the Giant was afraid of Bad News Brown. There ain't a lot of people that Andre the Giant was afraid of. Like, as much as we... As, and it's funny because I don't feel like Bad News Brown ever comes up when we talk about like the toughest guys in the wrestling business, but I think it's because nobody ever was willing to fight him. Yeah, like nobody ever tested him, so how the fuck do we know how tough he was? Uh, again, you know, Olympic medalist in judo. Nobody, uh, Piper in his gold gloves background is not touching that. And I guess, I guess this is what it comes down to is if Bad News Brown had shot on Roddy Piper here, wasted his ass and beaten him, what would have happened? Well, they would have had to fire him, but he would have gone to WCW and probably gotten the world title. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. What an amazing thing that would have happened. And I think honestly, not one person would blame bad news Brown to this day. Oh yeah. I think he'd actually be a folk hero. Yeah. Like motherfucker, you put on blackface in front of bad news Brown. He kills you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So bad news also claimed that Piper was asked to put him over and Piper refused. Which I believe. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. And that Bad News in response refused to put over Piper, which I think is only fair. Um, You know, not normally a fan of refusing the job to people, but if somebody won't lose to you, I don't see why you should be willing to lose to them. And Piper was utterly against doing jobs of any sort to anyone. So there's damn sure no way he was going to do one to Bad News Brown. No. And another nugget from the interview, Brown claims that Piper got paid $50,000 for the match and he only got 10000 which both those numbers seem about right to me. Like, that, that sounds like what you would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the other thing. Completely removing this stupid-ass storyline away, why was Roddy Piper wrestling Bad News Brown? Why? I, I mean, on paper, it's like, oh, they're two really tough brawlers. But yeah, put Piper against somebody bigger than this. Like, Bad News Brown was not on top of the world in 1989. Uh, he had gotten his run with Hogan like two years, three years before. That sounds right. And like, he's not doing anything at this point. This is the last thing he'll ever really do. Yeah. As far as I remember, he's pretty much gone from the company by the end of 90. It's just such a weird waste of Piper to put him in with bad news. Especially when he's got he's around so infrequently at this point. It feels like every appearance you get from him should be huge. Should be something, at least. Yeah. Um, 
They fight. It ends in a double count out. Who cares? It's like, garbage. And like yeah. we talked about how the it's last couple the last couple Piper matches on WrestleMania have been only like five minute brawls, but they've been great because Piper can really bring a lot of magic into that. It didn't seem like either one of these guys wanted to be here. Yeah. No, and I, I, I mean, they didn't like each other. I think we can pretty much say that. Yes. Um, so I think everybody's heard the story. The paint that Piper used to paint himself had been swapped out. I've heard different. I've heard it said that a couple. I've heard Andre the Giant. I've heard Blackjack Lands. I've heard our Arnold Scollin. So, not entirely sure who did it, but they did something to the paint to make it so it wouldn't wash off. And it, depending on who you ask, took either days or weeks for him to get the paint off. And that is hilarious. Yes, and very well deserved. Yes, it is. He had to go through the airport looking like that. Then we go backstage for a fun skit where Steve Allen is in the showers to play the piano with the Bolsheviks. He's supposed to do the Soviet national anthem right as they're about to sing a toilet flushes in the background and Nikolai Volkov gets really upset. Um, uh, (laughs) this segment is very weird. It's fun, but very famous host of things. Steve Allen is playing the piano, failing to successfully play the Russian national anthem. And then a toilet flushes like this is random. Vince McMahon loves toilet humor. I just loved I love the idea that Vince is there producing this segment. He's like, this is boring. Toilet flush. Yeah. Um, This seems like the kind of thing Vince would have produced himself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Next up, we get the Bolsheviks against the Hart Foundation. 30 second match. Hearts go over. It just feels like the Hart Foundation always got fucked over at WrestleMania. I think that's part of the reason why the Hart Foundation are obviously a hugely successful and over tag team. But like I I never seem to remember any great matches they had as a team because it's always just this WrestleMania bullshit that I remember. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they were they were the SummerSlam team because they had some really good SummerSlam matches that we reviewed Um, the match against the Brain Busters and the match against Demolition. But yeah, um, for some reason at WrestleMania, it's just always they're in the Battle Royal or they're in this bullshit 19-second match. But, yeah, they just couldn't catch a break for some reason. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing really much more to say about this. And, 19 I mean, seconds. As, as you're picking up on way too many matches on this show. Again. Four, 14. They're just cramming a bunch of meaningless matches on there. 14 big matches. I, I can't I, wait until we get to the 90s where they're finally going to be like, uh, we don't really have the roster for this. Maybe seven matches. Yeah. I mean, th- these shows are long. They're three and a half hours long, but they feel even longer with so many matches. They really do. Uh, next up, we've got the Barbarian against Tito Santana. So another enhancement match. Tito gets his ass kicked and Barbarian beats him with the diving clothesline. Now, I always thought Barbarian had kind of a cool look. I don't think that he was ever really going to go anywhere as a singles because he didn't have like any charisma to speak of at all. I mean, he got a pay-per-view world title match against Ron Simmons at Halloween Havoc. But 
and I think that you and I both agree about this. Why not push the warlord? <laughs> Why the barbarian? That's what's really important here. Push the warlord. Nobody ever listened to us. Nope. All right. Next up, we've got one of the bigger matches on the show. It's Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire against Randy Savage and Sensational Queen Sherry. Um, Dusty's come in pretty hot. He's already over. God, he's so over. And as much fun as people make of this Sapphire thing, Sapphire was so over too. Yeah. Um, you People know, love this. maybe it was a rib on Dusty putting him with, you know, a frumpy black woman, but like everything else in the WBF, he made the most of it. Yeah. All this does is prove that Dusty Rhodes can get anything over. So, I mean, that's the most valuable thing you can possibly have in the wrestling industry is the ability to make anything work. His uh, youngest son would eventually turn that into money as well. Yeah. And his other son. Yeah. I mean that's basically the Rhodes family legacy. Everything making bullshit work on the roads. Yep, everything. But it's always a rib on Vince instead because they're making that money. Yeah, Dusty introduces his manager for tonight, Miss Elizabeth. Gigantic pop. Absolutely. Uh, Sherry tries to slam Sapphire and can't get her up. Uh, Savage hits the axe handle from the top rope to the floor. He goes for another one. Sapphire stands in his way. Savage then throws Sapphire to the ground, which is a little risque for this era for the heel to hit the... Normally, it's only the male faces beating up the female heels. And let's also point out that Sapphire is not a trained wrestler. She legitimately is a fan that they turned into this. This is kind of irresponsible to put her in the ring. Yeah, it really is. Um, but I mean, no one's going to take care of her better than Randy Savage and Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. Uh, Savage hits another axe handle. Um, Sherry splashes Rhodes and the referee counts. So I guess this is a mixed tag match or intergender tag match. I always forget which one's which. Uh, intergender is the one where they can wrestle each other. So yeah, intergender. Yeah. Um, a uh, double noggin knocker on Savage and Sherry. Uh, Sapphire and Sherry tag in. Elizabeth shoves Sherry, and that allows Sapphire to roll her up for the pen. Um, pretty fun match. Uh, and I'm just going to say this. Randy Savage and Dusty Rhodes are absolutely legendary performers, and they're in this match. Sherry shows them all up. This is Sherry's match. How awesome is Sherry? Sherry is unbelievable. Did she ever do anything that wasn't great? Oh, and she did a lot of bullshit. Yeah. We start making the list of like being Peggy Sue, this whole Queen Sherry run, being Sean Michaels. The time where she owned slaves in WCW. Yeah, that wasn't cool. No, but Sherry did it. Marrying Colonel Robert Parker. Uh. Uh, So we're halfway through, about halfway through the show. That means it's intermission time. Um, Long series of segments here. We get a promo for WrestleMania 7 at the LA Coliseum. That sounds like it'll be an awesome WrestleMania. Vince actually has a line here, and I don't remember if it was this or if like an announcer says it, but it's just like, um, come to the LA Coliseum where we're going to draw 100,000 people. It's like, yeah. all right, buddy. <laughs> they were really putting over that 100,000 number strong. 
they genuinely thought that there was no way that they wouldn't. And why don't you? They haven't failed yet. Nope. Everything they've done has worked out. But this show is where storm clouds are starting starting to form. And actually, during the intermission, I think this is a good time to address what those dark clouds hanging over them were. And that's that I believe George Zahorian had been arrested around this time. And who is that, if you don't know? Uh, George Zahorian is just a humble physician from the state of Pennsylvania who happened to be the go-to man for steroids. Yep. He was a mark doctor who would deliver the juice to anybody who wanted it. And he had dirt on literally everyone. Whether or not you actually chose to believe all of the people that he said he had dirt on, he did. But we're talking Hogan, Vince, Sav, everybody, everybody. Yeah. So this steroid issue will hang over the company for the next four years. I mean, Vince goes to trial in the summer of 94. So this is a agonizing years long process for the company. And it's absolutely ruinous. There's an alternate timeline where this put the company out of business. Oh, easily. They, they had contingency plans in place. Or if that exact thing had happened, because it was a very real possibility. Yeah. And even without Vince going to prison, this had a I mean, this had a terrible effect on their business. This was years of bad publicity they get from this. And not only that, but the result of having to specifically market people who obviously weren't on steroids not only completely changes who they can push and changes what fan and so they have to develop fans towards a different style and look of a wrestler but it completely changes the style of the in-ring competition that they're putting on which values work rate over charisma it completely changes wrestling as we know it this scandal yeah and it, it's important to note that it's only at this point in 1990 that um steroid possession becomes a federal crime um, that will play a major role in the Vince McMahon trial to the point where it's almost baffling to me that they charged him because it seemed like all the things they were accusing him of happened before 1990 when steroids were legal. Right. Um, but yeah, this is when this is the point where it becomes a real problem. If you're getting shipments of steroids, because Using the Postal Service to distribute illegal substances is something the federal government takes very seriously. Oh, yeah, it is. Don't mess with the postman. But we'll continue to track the evolution of the steroid trial and scandal in the years to come, but it's already happened here. They, um, they, They cut ties with Zahorian in late 89 when it's clear that the heat is coming, but it's already too late. And they only barely survive this. Yep. Um, so we get a series of interview segments. Mean Gene interviews Bobby Heenan. He's furious with Andre and says he's going to start a new Heenan family. I don't really remember a whole lot coming out of Heenan Family 2.0. Yeah, I don't think that he really does. He'll be a commentator by like this point next year, right? His neck is getting to... Yeah, I mean, he replaces Jesse on commentary and his neck is getting too bad for him to manage it. It would put him in pain just being at ringside and, you know, yelling and shaking the ropes or whatever was too painful for him. Yeah. Um, then Jesse and gorilla interview 
Rona Barrett. She starts to say she has naked pictures of Jesse. So Jesse says they have something important to go to, and they cut away. It was pretty great because first uh, she was just like, there's some uh, adult video connections. And I was like, does Jesse Ventura have a sex tape? Like, I, I never thought to ask. Probably. Probably, yeah. Probably a good one, too. But, like, they play this off so smooth, and Jesse's like, uh, uh, let's throw to Sean Mooney. Yeah. Uh, Sean and Mooney interviews Savage and Sherry, who, as you would predict, are both crazy. Yep. Mean Gene interviews Demolition. They say the third time was the sweetest because nobody believed in them. I guess that's the beginning of their heel turn. That's them calling me out from years from before. And now we go to Hulk Hogan. Okay. Now, <laughs> before okay, before we decided to do this show, we kind of had a coin flip about who was going to do Hulk Hogan and who was going to do Ultimate Warrior because two promos are about to happen that we absolutely have to relate to you in their entirety. I, I know that this has kind of become like our hour to just cut promos and stuff, <laughs> but these are two of the most legendarily crazy promos in wrestling history. And I swear to you, we just have to do them. You have, if you've never heard them, you just have to hear the words that go on and come out of these people's mouths. And it's also important to point out how much more important the promos are back then because there's not good wrestling on TV. The TV is all squash matches. You tuned in to see the promos. Exactly. And, like, basically, the idea is that the Ultimate Warrior would cut these wild promos that didn't make any fucking sense, but it didn't matter because that was his brand, right? Nonsensical shit about warriors in the skies above. That was Warrior. And so Hogan, in trying to match his intensity goes to places that no Hogan promo has ever gone before. And this is after we mentioned in the last two yeah. that he talked about burying Atlantic City below the sea and yeah. pinning people on the bottom of the ocean floor. And backstroked out of the frame. So, uh, um, Steve, as the person who <laughs> drew Hulk Hogan in our little game, by all means. You don't mean, Gene, you don't have to remind me and the Hulkamaniacs at Skydome that we're going to face the ultimate challenge. When we crossed the border from America into Canada, I saw the Skydome beneath me. I saw the greatest arena of all time where the ultimate challenge will take place. And as we landed, brother, nothing but stark raving Hulkamaniacs were there to greet me at the airport. Nothing but positive vibes, dude. Hulkamania is running wild like it's never run before. But the ultimate warrior, you must must realize when you step into Skydome, when you feel the energy run wild through the arena, those are my people, brother. Those are the Hulkamaniacs. And Ultimate Warrior, this is where the power lies. The power of the Hulkster, the largest arms in the world. And once I get you down, once you're down on your knees, I'm going to ask you, do you want to live forever? <clears throat> And if the answer is yes, Ultimate Warrior, then breathe your last breath into my body. I can save you. I can save your fans. I can breathe eternal life into you with the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. But you've got to prove one thing to all the Hulkamaniacs out there. 
It's not whether you win or whether you lose. The only thing that matters is what kind of winner you are and what kind of loser you are. And Ultimate Warrior, I sure hope you're a good loser, brother. What you gonna do in Skydome when the largest arms in the world and Hulkamania destroys you? <laughs> that is a great promo. He's going to kill him. Yes. He's going to put him down on his knees and fucking kill him. The point in the promo where he says, I'm going to ask you, do you want to live forever? I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? But as we documented, there's a real like morbid streak in these Hogan promos from this era. There's a death drive here. Like when Hulk Hogan, and again, Hulk Hogan's not being coached on any of these promos. They're not being scripted. When he's reaching deep down and trying to come up with a money promo, he keeps returning to, I'm going to kill you and squash your soul. It's like, whoa. I mean, it's, yeah, it started with him, you know, calling the ambulance. Bundy put him in a coffin. It's continued to slamming Andre the Giant, you know, through the floor and, destroying Atlantic City, and now he's going to just straight-up murder the Ultimate Warrior in the middle of the ring. Now, it would take a lot of craziness to top what Hulk Hogan just said. Um, But Ultimate Warrior did not fail to deliver. So yes. if you would cue me up as Sean Mooney... <clears throat> Thank you, Mean Gene. I'm here with the reigning champion, the Ultimate Warrior. Ah! You are nothing but a normal... You don't deserve to breathe the same air that I and Hulk Hogan do. Hulk Hogan, I must ask you now as you asked me, do you, Hulk Hogan, want your ideas, your beliefs to live forever? For Hulk Hogan, in this normal world, physically none of us can live forever. But the places you have taken the Hulkamaniacs, the ideas and beliefs that you have given them can live through me, Hulk Hogan. This is why I breathe. That is why the Hulk Warriors have come. Hulk Hogan, there are ones that question where you are taking them. Do you no longer walk and st- or step into that darkness? Hulk Hogan, the darkness I speak of is nothing of fear. It is about the beliefs of accepting any and all challenges at the cost of losing everything, Hulk Hogan. You have lived, Hulk Hogan, for the last five WrestleManias for this one belief. Now, Hulk Hogan, I come to take what you believe in further than you ever could. I come, Hulk Hogan, not to destroy the Hulkamaniacs in Hulkamania. I come, Hulk Hogan, to bring the warriors and the Hulkamaniacs together as one as we, Hulk Hogan, accept all the challenges with all the strengths of the warriors and the Hulkamaniacs together. Hulk Hogan, the colors of the Hulkamaniacs are coming through the pores of my skin. And Hulk Hogan, when we meet Hulk Hogan, I will look at you and you will realize that then I have come to do no one no harm, but only Hulk Hogan, to take what we both believe into places it shall never have been. Like, I'm actually like, I think I blew a blood vessel just saying all of that. How did he do that? I, I don't, and like, the vascularity of his arms as he's doing that, I'm amazed he's alive. Or, I mean, okay, wait. He's not alive, but I mean, after this promo, I I think this. Pro- I mean, God, it's morbid to think, but did that promo he did on Raw kill him? Like this is an unnatural amount of intensity. Also, he says the words Hulk Hogan twenty five times. Yeah. Uh- on the way into this show is where he did the crash the plane promo, right? Yeah. If I hadn't read this promo, I would also read that one. But that is literally the one where he's just like, 
I will find the plane that you are riding on to America and I will take over the plane and I will demolish the pilot and I will assume the controls and send it crashing down into parts unknown. Terrorist ultimate warrior. You're gonna kamikaze his plane? That, That seems extreme. Yeah. Like you guys, and at this point, you guys are friends. Like, it's not even, like, there's no heat here. Yeah, it's funny. I say there's no heat, but, yeah, they're both going to kill each other. I had to say, like, literally, they are promising murder. That is where we are. They don't deliver on it, though. No, they don't. All right, we're back. We've got the Rockers against the Orient Express. Um, Gorilla points out that with Demolition as the new champions, the tag division is wide open and that, Wins and losses are more important than ever. I thought that was a really nice bit of commentary for this match because it meant it meant it made it mean something. Truly not enough in wrestling do the commentators actually explain why the matches you're watching individually matter in the bigger picture. And it shouldn't be hard. No. Like even on Raw, like a random match between like Seth Rollins and Sheamus, just be like, well, Seth Rollins is trying to build momentum to get to the world title. Like how yeah. hard is it to say that? It would help if things were laid out more logically where somebody would win a bunch of big matches and get a title match as a result, but it tends not to actually happen that way. Maybe that's why they don't do it. It's just like, yeah, you can say that about Rollins, but he's not actually getting that match. Uh, then Gorilla says, only the World Wrestling Federation Championship Committee can decide who gets championship matches. That's good to know, as I have literally never heard that body reference like, before or since. Gorilla, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> this is something WCW would always reference, would be the WCW Championship Committee. And it, I think it's a great idea, and it can be an unseen body, but just the idea that yeah, there's some group of people deciding, you know, how this actually happens. Well, in WCW, that's because it's based in a real thing that by the time they become WCW is no longer true because the NWA board controls only the NWA title. But that came from a real thing. There really was a board that decided who yeah. could and could not be world champion. Not the case in the WWF. Fuck no, it's Vince. It's just Vince and Pat in a room together. On screen, it's Jack Tunney. Yeah. Brooke Jack Tunney. (laughs) Uh, So the Orient Express here, Pat Tanaka and Akio Sato. Paul Diamond will come in later as the dude (coughs) under the mask. Yeah. and I I always thought the Orient Express were a pretty good tag team. I mean, Pat Tanaka is a talented worker. Honestly, the tag team works better when Paul Diamond comes in, even if that makes it exponentially more racist once he's <laughs> part of the group. But, uh, I mean, it's a good team. They're like a good undercard kind of half-jobber team. Like, it works. Yeah, and then we get to my favorite part of any Rockers match, which is Gorilla burying them. He, he says they look lethargic. Guess they were rocking a little too hard last night. He doesn't let this go. It's this been is three every years. Every Rockers match. Yeah, like I, we've just done it, and like they've been in the last three WrestleManias that we've covered. He has made this same comment three consecutive times, and probably at every show in between. Yeah, like I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know if he's being fed that, or if Gorilla Monsoon just hates the Rockers. I. Maybe he only does it when they're because they lose this match. Janetti uh, gets counted out after getting salt thrown in his eyes. I guess he's just doing it to kind of 
cover for them for losing. I mean, it must be said that Gorilla Monsoon did have a way of basically forecasting what the finish of the match was going to be. He was one of those guys who loved to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So he could see how smart he was. Exactly. Um, But yeah, I mean, a good match. They have a much better one at the 1991 Royal Rumble. Yes, they do. Um, But still, one of the better matches on this show. Which isn't really hard because, I mean, is there only one great match on this show? Yeah, I mean, there's not really even a lot of matches I would call good on this show. There's just a lot of matches. This is a show where the best match on it is contested by the worst worker on the show. Let's just be clear. Uh, Then we go back to Steve Allen interviewing the Honky Tonk Man and Greg Valentine. Valentine has been forced at gunpoint to dye his hair black, and they are now officially Rhythm and Blues. Um, Asked if he's excited, Allen says, I haven't been this excited since I found out Pee Wee Herman was straight. Which is a very weird line, even for the time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that, how that made it on the show. I, 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 I honestly don't. Like, even... It's weird to think that at a time now when you can't even be a wrestler and get your own promo on the show, back then they'd just be like, what? Person who doesn't work for me? Here's a mic. Say whatever you want. Uh Honky and Valentine are going to debut their new single, Honka, 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 Honky Love Tonight. Oh, my God. We'll, we'll get to it. Uh. <laughs> uh, because first we have to cover Dino Bravo versus Jim Duggan. But why? Guys, yet again... Dino fucking Bravo gets a match on WrestleMania. And Jim Duggan's not far above him at this point either. No. And why even put Jim Duggan on this show? His entire purpose is to be a flag-waving American. And we're not in America. He actually got booed a fair amount here. Yes. Wrestling a Canadian in Canada. Like, you probably... to start a USA chant. In Canada. That's like that's among the most arrogant things I've ever seen anyone try to do is try to start a USA chant in Toronto. Like oh man. I actually didn't think that this was that terrible. There was some physicality to it, but it's just so many space filling matches. Yeah. Dino Bravo had no reason to exist on these shows. He just didn't. Um, Duggan goes for the three-point stance clothesline. Earthquake grabs him. The referee gets distracted with Earthquake. That allows Duggan to hit Bravo with the two-by-four for the pin, but Earthquake beats up Duggan after the match. Yay. Yeah. And then we go backstage for what is, I kid you not, one of the greatest (laughs) promos I've ever seen from Jake Roberts. This is maybe one of it might be a top five promo all time. It I, is this amazing. is famous for good reason. Um, it just goes right into it. Well, 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 the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Here we are at WrestleMania, and it's the biggest match of your career. Why? 
because everything you stand for is on the line, namely the million-dollar belt. Oh, yeah, it can be yours again. You see, all you have to do is get it back to go through Damien and me. But you see, Damien and I don't forget. We remember all the times you made people grovel for your money. These were people less fortunate than you, people who could have used your money for essentials. And what did you do? You made fun of them. You humbled them, and you humiliated them. Well, now it's my turn. I'm going to make you beg, Deviasi. You're going to get down on your hands and knees. This time you'll be the one that's humbled. This time you'll be the one that's humiliated. And this time you'll be the one that grovels for all the money. And how appropriate it is that the money you grovel for is your very own. A victim of your own greed, wallowing in the muck of avarice. God, that's so good. 90 seconds. Just perfection. And Impressive like, to have a wrestling promo make me have to look up a word, but I did not know what avarice meant. It means greed. And Okay, let, let's be clear. This is on the same show, not five segments after the Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior <laughs> promos. Yeah, that made which, no goddamn sense. And which were just snorting and yelling. And here's a man talking very quietly into the camera about avarice and greed. And it is... So compelling, it will knock your socks off in a way that those other promos never could be. But that's what makes it perfect because everybody's promos in this era are shouting. Jake talks calmly. He talks quietly down to a whisper at times, but it makes you lean in and listen to what he's saying. And it's so good because literally this is the build that DiBiase has been leading to this whole time. The character of the million dollar man has been leading to this. It's just, it, they didn't build to this match that way. It's just that Jake has decided to go into it with a narrative all his own, that this is the blow off of that character. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, yeah. You know, J, Jake Roberts is going to stand up for the working man. And thank God. It's so good. Yeah. Um, mean Gene seems a bit lost for words. And then he gets in a great line. Longfellow couldn't have said it any better. And I mean, Longfellow probably would have written it, but never mind. Yeah. Um, and then we've got our next match. It's for the Million Dollar Championship. Ted DiBiase is defending against Jake Roberts, but Jake stole the belt from DiBiase, and he's got it in the bag with Damien. Yep. Uh, this was a good match. Uh, Jake just kicks the shit out of DiBiase. Um then DiBiase blocks a knee lift, sends Jake flying. Crowd is going pretty crazy during the heat segment, and then they start doing the wave. Um, I don't think they meant that in the disrespectful way that that would be done today. Yeah, I, I think that they were just genuinely excited because they're still making noise the whole time. Like, they're into this. Yeah. There's a big pile driver from DiBiase. Uh, Jake connects with a sunset flip, but he can't get the pin. Uh, DiBiase locks in the million dollar dream and Jake appears to be out, but he manages to get a foot on the ropes during a cover. And then he kicks out of a second cover. Uh, DiBiase goes to the second rope. He takes too long, gets hit with a shot to the gut coming off. There's a clothesline from Jake an inverted atomic drop, another clothesline backdrop, short arm clothesline. You know, what's coming next. Jake signals for the DDT. Virgil pulls Jake out. Jake beats up Virgil 
He gets hooked in the million dollar dream on the floor. DiBiase puts Jake into the post. Virgil helps DiBiase back into the ring and Jake is counted out. Not super thrilled with the finish, but a very good match. Absolutely. I mean, this seems to be a show where there can't be any clean finish but the main event, but it's a very, very good match. That's just following the WrestleMania formula. Yeah. Um, Virgil hustles away with the million-dollar belt. DiBiase gets hit with a DDT. Jake gives away DiBiase's money, including giving a $100 bill to Mary Tyler Moore, who's sitting <laughs> in the front row. Which is a pretty great moment, actually. Jake brings out Damien, but Virgil comes back and helps DiBiase escape. This is, I mean, it's not everything that you could have wanted it to be. It's not, it doesn't live up to the promo that precedes it, but it's good. Yeah. I mean, I get, look, for the purposes of the house shows, you probably do have to have DiBiase win, and you don't want to have him actually beat Jake. So, yeah, you settle on the count out. Yep. Next up, we've got Big Boss Man against Akeem the African Dream as the Twin Towers explode. Boss Man is apparently no longer a corrupt prison guard. He's now a good guy. Really always... Wasn't it interesting how he's really seemed to be portrayed more as a cop than a prison guard? Yeah, they... I never really got a really great idea of what it is that he was supposed to be representing. And maybe that's because it's really hard to be a babyface prison guard. Yeah. Just because prison guards are not inherently babyface kind of things. So now, he, Ray Trailer was actually a prison guard. Right. But it made more sense for the character to be a cop. Absolutely. So, and he wears a police officer's uniform. Well, really, he wears like a stripper uniform, <laughs> like a and stripper dressed as a cop. He does, he does undo most of the buttons on that <laughs> shirt back in this era because it must have been pretty hot wrestling in that outfit. I bet. Uh, this is a really quick match. DiBiase hid under the ring <laughs> and attacks Boss Man as he's getting into the ring. Akeem goes for a 10 punch. Boss Man counters with an inverted atomic drop. There's a clothesline from Bossman, and he hits the Bossman slam to get the pin in 90 seconds. Like, seriously, we could not, like, at least this match had some build to it. We couldn't have cut Dino Bravo in the Bolsheviks off of this show and gotten this five minutes. Uh, no, those matches were absolutely essential. Of course they were. Sean Mooney interviews Mary Tyler Moore. Any thoughts on this? I felt so bad for her because she's clearly well, at her very first wrestling show ever. So Sean Mooney asked her, like, what do you think? And she's like, oh, this is like the best of athleticism in theater. It's great. And then he just keeps going to her with follow-up questions like, oh, who's your favorite wrestler? He's really pushing it. It's like he's trying to expose her. It's just like, and she's just like, uh, like, why are you putting her on the spot like that? Next up, we've got the Rhythm and Blues performance. Oh, my um, God. They're coming to your town in the pink Cadillac. And who's behind the wheel? Diamond Dallas Page. Yes. He makes his WrestleMania debut. Um, Twelve years after this, he would actually wrestle in the same building at <laughs> WrestleMania 18. Which is really a great story. And literally, the way that he got here is he was a very popular New Jersey and Florida club promoter 
He actually owned this car. He knew somebody involved with the show, and they were like, hey, you have a Dusty. Yeah, and he had to drive that car from Florida <laughs> to Toronto to be I here. Love, I love that. He's just driving the drop-top caddy all the way up there. That's It's such an amazing story. I hope they really took care of him. I I, I don't know how much they paid him, but just doing this is going to get his foot in the door in WCW when he decides to be a manager like very soon after. Oh, yeah, I I do love the tradition of future stars debuting in really weird roles at WrestleMania, uh, like CM Punk yep. being part of Cena's entrance at WrestleMania 22, or Charlotte being uh, one of Triple H's, I don't know, handmaiden servants at WrestleMania 30. Yeah, those people were Alexa Bliss, Charlotte, and Sasha Banks, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Rhythm and Blues. Honky Tonk Man is amazing. Like, I think we've established that. We both love the Honky Tonk Man. Absolutely. And he's perfect in this era. He's at the peak of his game. Craig Valentine is so miserable doing this. He doesn't even bother to pretend to be playing his guitar or lip sync during this. It is. It bums me out watching Greg Valentine try to get through this valiantly. Like he's so unhappy having like they are like physically forcing him at gunpoint to have charisma and he does not like it. Yeah, they sing a song. It's nothing compared to Honky Tonk Man's brilliant entrance theme. This song sucks. Yeah, I'm sure Jimmy Hart wrote it because that's what Jimmy Hart did. Um, I mean, it's ass. Let's let's just be clear. It's bad, and they don't sing it. Like, Valentine has actual lines to sing in it, and he just mumbles his way through it. So we come to the end of this excruciating segment Honky yells at some vendors in, on the floor, and it turns out they're the Bushwhackers, and they run Rhythm and Blues off to set up a really hot feud for after WrestleMania. Yeah, nothing hotter than the Bushwhackers and Rhythm and Blues. <sighs> and we've got one more match before the main event. Rick like, Rude against Jimmy Snuka. I guarantee you, if you had pulled people walking out of this arena after the show was over about what matches were on this card, not one of them would have said that Rick Rude wrestled Jimmy Snuka on this show. It's Snuka's first ever WrestleMania match, although he was in Hogan and T's corner at WrestleMania 1. He's been gone for a while. I'm not entirely sure what he was up to in the interim. Uh, laying low? <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's a three-minute match. Snooker misses the Superfly splash off the second rope. It's WrestleMania, and he doesn't even go to the top <laughs> row. Saving that for the house shows, brother. Yeah. And Rude gets the pin with the Rude Awakening. I mean, they, they've already got their money. Snooker is old, and he sucks. They keep trying to, they keep breaking back so many times is the thing. He's got another two or three runs after this. If you have ever drawn a dime for Vince, he will bring you back to try again. 
Yeah. That is a simple proven fact. Or especially if you were a star for his dad. Yeah. Anybody who was a star for senior is automatically over with junior. If Vince worshipped you when he was a teenager, you got a job for life, son. All right. We finally made it. It's the main event. Title for title. Hulk Hogan against the Ultimate Warrior. Warrior sprints to the ring, which Jesse points out is stupid because he should be conserving (laughs) his energy. The second that I saw all the platforms taking people to the ring, I was just like, fucking Warrior's just going to run to the ring, isn't he? All like one mile of it. Ooh. I mean, we joke about him gassing, gassing out, just running to the ring, but that was a long run. Yeah, it was. Uh, he's got time to recover because Hogan's got his entrance, and Hogan takes a while to get down that ramp. Hogan's pop is so crazily bigger than Warrior's. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, as I said, Warrior had more momentum coming into this, but Toronto is Hogan's town. Nobody will ever out-pop Hogan in Toronto. We also haven't really mentioned, there's a group of probably 10 to 15 guys in the front row wearing like tuxedos and warrior paint. Did you see those guys? Yes. What the hell was up with that? I think it speaks for itself. Yeah. It just, it was really weird. There's just a contingent of people all dressed identically. So the match starts. They stare each other down. We get a test of strength. Warrior initially wins it, gets Hogan down to the mat. I don't know if he asked him if he wanted to live forever here. Do you think he did? Do you want to live forever? Hogan does. He he turns it around. Uh, Somebody breathes something into somebody in this next part. Uh, Uh, Hogan gets Warrior down on his knees, and it looks like he's performing a particular act. You've seen the GIF. I, I, I'm pretty sure every wrestling <laughs> fan has seen the GIF of Ultimate Warrior blowing Hulk Hogan. Like the, the, the best part is the ecstasy on Hogan's face. It's like, ooh, yeah! yeah. Yes! <laughs> if the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan had sex, I absolutely believe it would oh be the God. loudest sex any human beings had ever had. The, the many galaxies of the universe would explode. Explode in ecstasy. Across the patterns of space. Man, I have my fan fiction pen ready to start writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, crowd is just going wild. Uh, Warrior runs the ropes and Hogan slams and Warrior pops right back up. Uh, they run the ropes again. Warrior slams Hogan, but Hogan doesn't pop up. Um clothesline from hogan warrior sends hogan to the floor hogan's knee is hurt he's limping around trying to get it together uh warrior doesn't show any mercy he comes out and immediately goes after hogan and then hogan's knee is completely fine and this is never again referenced during the match which is a shame because i mean maybe hogan was thinking like hey maybe i'll let warrior work one of my body parts but it's just, it's not going to work with Warrior doing the majority of the work. And I guarantee you, Warrior does not know how to work a body part. <laughs> um, Hogan slams Warrior. Gorilla says he must have temporarily dislocated the patella. Yeah, that's, that's it, Gorilla. 
yep. master of the anatomy is our right, gorilla right after food. he got hit in the external occipital protuberance. Exactly. Um, Hogan applies a front face lock. Gorilla says it's a painful hold. And Jesse goes, absolutely, just ask Richard Belzer. Jesse doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> what a great reference to dra drag out here in the main event of WrestleMania. But hey, if you want to put over Hulk Hogan doing that hold, he choked out a man on live TV with it. Damn sure did. Um, Warrior fights out of a chin lock and they hit each other with simultaneous clotheslines. They do a really good job protecting both guys here. I think Hogan had better cardio than Warrior, but they build in so many rest spots here. But despite that, the match is never boring. Yeah. It is... Okay, look. This is a masterful job, both by whoever helped them design this match, which I have to imagine it was probably Pat at this point. Definitely. And Hulk Hogan himself. Let's give credit where credit is due. This is a masterful carry job by Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan knows exactly what he has to do to shine up Warrior. He knows exactly what he has to do to protect himself. He knows exactly what he has to do to prevent Warrior and himself from blowing the fuck up. And this match does not miss a beat from start to finish. Despite the fact that the Ultimate Warrior can't even be trusted to do his own finisher correctly. And yet he's in what is a tremendously dramatic match. I've heard Hogan claim that like a couple minutes into this match when he got Warrior in a chin lock, like Warrior was kind of freaking out and was like, Let, let's just end it here. Let's let's go to the finish. And Hogan says he had to be like, no, man, it's WrestleMania. We, we got to do a real match. Could just be another Hogan lie. But that one actually sounds closer to the truth. You know, you can kind of believe that. But yeah, Warrior is just like, freaking out he's never had a match anywhere near this big and wants to get it over with and i think um, at this point he had never had a match go longer than 10 minutes with anyone but rick rude i want to say and he's going 22 here sounds possible and um, he, he's gonna put a lot of trust in hulk hogan because hulk yeah. could have in his fucking push right here uh he waited to do that until after the match exactly but like he could have buried him easy or just they, not put him over. They tease the double count out, but both guys sit up. Uh, Warrior hits some clotheslines and a big suplex. There's a bear hug from Warrior. Hogan fights out. Referee gets wiped out with a shoulder tackle by Warrior. Warrior hits an axe handle off the top rope, then another. That's more work than usually you usually got out of the Warrior. I, to say, I don't know that I've ever seen him come off the top. For good reason. <laughs> Uh, Warrior goes for a shoulder tackle, but Hogan dodges and slams him headfirst into the mat. Hogan's got the match won, but there's no referee to make the count. Gotta give Hogan that visual pinfall. Yep. He's keeping the torch, brother. Keeping it. Um, there's a back suplex from the Warrior. Now it's Warrior who has the match won, but the, the, the match, the referee is still out from that shoulder tackle. The important thing about this match is getting over the idea that these two are equals. And this actually does a pretty good job of that, is establishing that regardless of who wins, either one of these guys could have won. Yeah. Um, Warrior hits the gorilla press. 
and the splash, but Hogan kicks out at two and he hawks up. Hogan gets the punches, the big boot. He goes for the leg drop, but he misses. Warrior hits the splash. One, two, three. He got him. Warrior wins the title. Hogan kicks out at four. Love this finishing sequence. It's just, it's amazing how smooth it was considering who we're talking about here. Like everything works absolutely perfectly. It goes out without a hitch. Warrior beats Hogan, but Hogan still looks extremely strong. He just, Warrior just caught him by surprise. They give you the impression that these two could have gone another 30 minutes, even though they absolutely could not have. Like it, it's, it's perfect. Warrior wins, but it absolutely sets up the rematch. And now the infamous post-match sequence. I watched this over and over to analyze it. Hogan falls to the mat in agony. He, the referee, I feel like something went wrong here because the referee goes to hand both titles to Warrior, but Warrior only takes the Intercontinental title. Pretty sure Hogan was supposed to get the world title, but he does end up getting it from the referee eventually. Yeah, I think that the idea was always for Hogan to present it to Warrior. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure he didn't go off script here. I think his kind of his acting just turned out to be more powerful than they anticipated. He really plays this well. I mean, he just looks so sad and heartbroken. He grabs the <laughs> world title. He kind of gives it one last look, and then he presents it to Warrior. And I think we've talked about this before, but the, the most babyface thing you can do is lose with dignity and you can't really lose with more honor than Hogan does here. And it's important because it doesn't feel like just another match. Hogan treats this like this is the end of his era and he's handing it over to Warrior. It's As a metaphor, it's very literal and it's perfect. Like he literally passes the torch to Warrior. Yeah. But the brilliance is Hogan ends up even more over because he lost so classily. But that's the thing, too, is that I almost wonder if that wasn't the plan all along because the cameras don't follow Warrior after the match ends. The cameras immediately follow Hogan. Well, yeah, and it, it makes sense because Hogan's not done. I mean, they are kind of breaking the wrestling code here because the wrestling code is, you know, when you get beat, as Pat Patterson would say, you just lay there like a douchebag. Like Big Show at that, uh, what was it? <laughs> Road, Wild? Road Wild, yeah. Where he had to lay in the ring for 25 minutes. <laughs> Nobody cares about you. You lost. You just lay there like a douchebag. Oh, Pat. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, the cameras follow Hogan as he gets in the cart and you know, takes his last ride to the back. He gets a huge ovation for this. And even Jesse has to put him over and says that he does believe that Hulkamania will live forever. And it's worth mentioning that those are basically the last words that Jesse Ventura says on commentary. Or at least in front of the WrestleMania crowd. Like that That's his last commentary line that will live forever, is him finally putting yes. over Hulk Hogan. Yeah, he did not threaten to come out of retirement and take him out. How great would that have been? Like, he should have been passing me the belt, Gorilla. <laughs> <sighs> oh, 
I mean, you just can't, I, I can't talk about this enough. It's just like, it's such a brilliant piece of baby face work. And I don't know if it actually hurt warrior and even, you know, if it did, it did, but it makes sense not to put all your eggs in the warrior basket as we would find out because it turned out Hogan still had to carry things for ideally he would have carried things for even longer than he did, but circumstances prevented that. But it turned out he still needed to be the guy for years after this. Whether Hogan was intentionally trying to show up warrior or not, it is not Hulk Hogan burying warrior that buries warrior warrior buries warrior. And if anything, the show of, Basically, being a perfect babyface that Hogan does here just further reinforces how not on his level Warrior is. And maybe that was Hogan's intent. Maybe that's what he was trying to get across. But even if it is, all it does is really show that Hulk Hogan is on a whole other fucking level as a babyface top guy than really maybe anybody ever. Yeah, like Warrior just, could never pull off something like that. No. And maybe nobody could have. No, I mean, we've yeah, seen Cena. out of me. We've seen Cena try, but oh they've never. God, built- how many times have they done this with Cena, where he has to, he loses, and he has to forlornly take off his wristbands and leave them in the. It's like John, we know you're you're just going away to make a movie. We know you're going to be back in three months. If they had ever just built to doing it definitively one time like this, God, I think. Do you remember WrestleMania 29 where Rock did the thing where he did the raising Cena's hand shit? Yeah. That was awful. I awful. hated that. No, it sucks. Because you can't pass the torch to someone who already has it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, it wasn't your fucking torch anymore, Rock. John's had it for five years. Yeah, John's been carrying this ball for a long time. But that's the thing. Like, Cena's tried so hard to pass that torch off to every new guy who walks through the doors, and no one can pick it up and take it, and they don't book it right. This is the... The quintessential pass of the torch moment in wrestling history. The thing is, it meant so much because nobody had beaten Hogan, whereas now guys get beat all the damn time. Right. Seth Rollins beat both John Cena and Roman Reigns in the same match on Raw, and, and it didn't mean anything. He's going to be in the Intercontinental Triple Threat <laughs> match at WrestleMania. Just how nonsense is this? John Cena beat AJ Styles on TV a couple weeks ago, and he's still not the world champion. He did that just to get into a match where he has to beat five other guys. Because <sighs> otherwise he won't have a match at WrestleMania. You know, he's John fucking Cena. <sighs> I, I swear we don't really we don't hate the current product. It seems like we always bear. It seems like we always bury it when it comes up. But we're not burying it. It buries itself. Yes, much like Warrior buried himself, <laughs> the product buries itself. Oh my god! Yeah. So I mean, it's a big celebration. There's fireworks. This is supposed to be the moment that you know crowns the Warrior as the new king. He's supposed to be the man to carry the World Wrestling Federation into the 90s. And it doesn't work out that way. Um, I mean, the the, the steroid controversy obviously has a big role in that. And we'll cover that more in the years to come. But a, a lot of things go wrong for him. And I think we've spent a lot of time analyzing it, but we could spend a lot more. Because I think it is one of the more fascinating questions 
in wrestling history why it didn't work because it's not like he wasn't over. Absolutely. And seriously, Even as champion, he continues to get gigantic pops. And there's nothing like this has ever happened before. Like one of our favorite people in the world to talk about is Sid, but even Sid never got named top guy and was out of the company seven months later. Like that's insane. Yeah. Um, just oh, the warrior. What a just, I, <coughs> what the hell happened to him that made him be the person he was? I've always wondered. Great question. Great, great question. And one thing I find fascinating is the story Pat Patterson tells about not being able to find him after the match and then finding him in like a broom closet and he's holding the belt and he's sobbing. And it just, it's so strange because Warrior doesn't, like everything you hear is he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't a wrestling fan growing up. He was just in the business to make money, but still the, it meant so much to him to have that belt and how much that belt meant back then. It almost makes you wonder if warrior was just severely, severely misunderstood, but at the same time, fuck he warrior, was a who cares? real asshole. Yeah. Like, fuck the warrior. <laughs> even before we get into his later turn into racism and homophobia, like just the stories you hear about him from back then and, kind of the way he handled himself he hurt a lot of people like injured Bobby Heenan hurt all kinds of other guys was just super reckless and sloppy and didn't care and protect people in the ring at all and that's pretty reprehensible absolutely and there there may not have been a bigger ultimate warrior fan than me honestly like I I had the, uh, the wrestling buddies of Ultimate Warrior. I had Ultimate Warrior t-shirts, posters. Like Ultimate Warrior was my dude when I started watching wrestling. It was an incredible disappointment to find out the man that he turned out to be. Yeah. And this isn't it for his career. But if you start making the list of his career highlights, it's not very long after this. No, it's really not. I mean, he will job out Triple H in 20 seconds. That's pretty funny. That's one of the greatest things that ever happened. But Triple H sure got one over on him by bringing him back to the company and inducting him into the Hall of Fame. Yep. Took out after his father-in-law in in that regard. (laughs) Okay. So we made it through WrestleMania six. One of our longest shows, but I I think we had plenty of content to fill this one. It's just an endlessly fascinating deal here. And now we're on to WrestleMania 7, which, if anything, is is even more more fascinating. fascinating. Like, yeah. Uh, This is, I I said storm clouds were starting to form on the horizon here. By, By WrestleMania 7, winter was definitely coming. Up until this point, like we said that this is a little bit of a financial disappointment, and it was, but it wasn't a yeah. failure. And you know, WrestleMania four wasn't amazing, WrestleMania two wasn't amazing, but still, you know, things are they've still been in an up uh, there's still been an upward trend. And in every WrestleMania up to this point, they accomplish something. Either they attempt to do something that's never been done before, or they try something creatively to make somebody a new main eventer or a new major star, and they succeed in those areas. WrestleMania 7 is the first time they 
fail. Completely, unquestionably across the board, fail. Yeah, it's a failure on all fronts and not a, an even bigger one than I think people realize. The long-term consequences of that slaughter storyline are gigantic. It is one of the major causes of the decline of the company in the, in the 90s. And they don't, they go into a funk that they don't get over until the Attitude Era. Can't wait to talk about it. Going to be real cheerful. <laughs> oh, man. It's some of the best and worst stuff ever. It's next week, WrestleMania 7, Stars and Stripes Forever.